It's very uh, difficult for established conventional corporations uh, to move the boat, the ship of state <laughs> to, I mean, they already have processes in place. They have vendors in place. They have people in place. They have um, supply chains in place to make what they already make. And so to flip that, to create something that's faster, more green, more sustainable, um, cleaner, whatever, is nearly impossible. And so what a lot of companies try to do is they buy those companies, smaller companies, um, and however, by bringing them in this differs case by case, right? But when they once they bring them into their system and their, their supply chain and there's they sort of pollute what they bought in many cases. And so um, as a result of that, the, in the end game, those larger corporations with the, with the supply chains and so forth and the scale will probably f start falling away over time because they just won't be able to make the switch. Hi, I'm Johnny Prest, and this is the Brand Master Flash Podcast. Your brand is your community. It's their instinctive connectedness with you in their hearts and minds. This podcast explores how to define and deliver a brand strategy that is true to who you really are. It will inspire your team, connect you with your customers, and make a positive difference. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, it's Johnny here. Welcome to the Brand Master Flash podcast. Now, if you work in marketing, or you work in brand or design or brand building, we often hear the words tribe and community. And you can hear these words used by influencers or influential people within marketing like Seth Godin or Martin Neumeyer. I have to be honest, I do use these words quite a lot, but I kind of struggle with them a little bit because I've never sort of seen the association with a tribe or community with a product or a place or even a person. I always think of tribes and communities of people that live together, share and work together and have children and raise children within a tribe. I suppose now that we are tribal people that life has changed and a tribal community might be quite different now from what it was a few thousand years ago so the association between the words and what they're associated to i've kind of struggled with a little bit until i read this book just grab it here and this book is Primal Branding by Patrick Hanlon. And in this book, Patrick talks about 
something called a primal code. And this primal code has seven pieces of individual code. And I'm gonna list you them now. You have the creation story, the creed, icons, rituals, pagans, sacred words, and a leader. And if people or places or organizations use and optimize and discover these seven pieces of code and deliver them, then this will create a belief system that connects with people and ultimately help you build a community or we could call it a tribe. So I had the pleasure to have a conversation with Patrick recently and Patrick is really inspiring. He's a very, very knowledgeable person. He comes from an agency background. So he's worked at organizations like Olgubi. And he now is a bit like me. He's, you can't really pin him down with a job title or description. He's creative, he's a writer, he's a producer, he's an art director. He's involved in many different projects at many different levels, but his writing is absolutely fantastic. And I really, really connected with this book. And if I'm honest, it has to be right up there in one of the best brand books I've ever read. And I, I, it's more than brand. It's more about psychology. It's more about behavior and our association with the brands that we love and why we love them. In the book, he doesn't just talk about products though. He talks about places and people and other associations that we have and that connectedness that we have in the things in our life. So this conversation is a bit different from the other conversations I had. We, it was done over Zoom and literally as soon as the Zoom um, opened up, we just started chatting. And there was no beginning to the to the conversation. And even after I said goodbye at the end of the conversation or thank you, we continued to have a conversation. So I've kind of edited edited it together and stitched it together. So hopefully you'll kind of get the full the full conversation that we had when we spoke. So yeah, this is Patrick Hanlon, the author of Primal Branding. Enjoy. Yeah, yeah. I um, it took me I don't know fifty years or something to realize that I, um, I was always a writer. I've been a writer since I was, I was paid when I was fifteen years old for some poems, and paid by a magazine. And you know that's <laughs> the last time I ever got paid for poems. But the who gets paid for poems? No one. But the um, but then it sent me off on a writing jaunt and but I always loved design and I always came up but when when I went into advertising I was would always do the heinous absolutely asshole thing which would be to lay out the uh, I mean this is just the way I think I would put down a, a square and then scribble in a headline up there and that's the that's the way I thought of that's how I came up with headlines right and so I'd hand them to my art director partner who would <laughs> not appreciated at all and luckily i had great art directors um for most almost all of my career so not in the beginning but afterwards and later on and so you know brilliant art directors and i even did it with them 
and the um but that was just the way my brain worked and so i've always been interested in design and i've always been interested in illustrations and uh i started using illustrations uh back in when we started in uh we started in 2002 and by 2005 i think we put out our first at the time the company was called thinktopia the first thinktopia poster and um which people used to steal off of walls off of off they first of all people i would send it to them they would frame it because they wanted to hang on to it and then people would steal it off their walls and uh, <laughs> literally so um so yeah very similar um pursuits i guess i i knew that you were going to be artistic um just from the front cover of your from primal branding because that that's it's quite a ballsy yes oh we have to discuss that you sent me a bit the baby shot right yeah yeah brilliant and how did you come up with that well (laughs) that that was me just turning around and she had the book so i in the more i do all my reading seriously yeah i do all my reading in the morning that's even better (laughs) and she's normally just rolling she's 10 months old she's normally rolling around and stuff like that and i have my coffee my book and I tried to keep an eye on my three children who are normally causing havoc and I'm doing it really badly. And um, and it was actually Natalie that turned to the left and she just had the book in her mouth and uh-huh. she decided to take a photograph of it. And I, and I was like, wow, that's wicked. And then uploaded it. I thought, well, I should tag you in. It's your book. And then yeah. you liked it and shared it. And I was, yeah, I was dead stoked when you did that. Well, with your permission, I would like to use it again as a visual for a headline. Yeah, of course. For an article that I'm, I'm going to put out, yeah. yeah, and it's um the headline when a bastard dies. It probably get it wrong, but um oh, when's the best time to start thinking about your brand? Basically, yeah, right, <laughs> very early. Well, do you know, do you know what, Patrick? I, I think you're an exquisite writer, to be honest, because um not only obviously this book and then the article that you recently shared with me, I think. Writing is one of those things, I think it's a bit like playing bass guitar. It's it's easy to pick up, but it's hard to master. And mm. I, and I and it, and when you mentioned you know that your work at Ogilvy, I think there's definitely um an a really great traditional art form of this this transcendent you no, know, it's kind of like a um the bounce between great copy and great words and great art direction and i feel like in today's marketing brand world a little bit of that magic has been lost you know you are the one or the other a lot of the designers that i work with they're very very visual they don't really care about the words and vice versa and um it was only till actually i watched mad men and i don't Mm. know if it's a true representation of 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 older you know, agencies, but the it was the energy and the focus and the importance of the relationship between words and pictures. And then that's why I mentioned the front cover of your book, because it is ballsy. Um, and I love the fact that it's hand-drawn. And you don't see that very often. The format of the front cover of a book these days, it's quite formulaic, you know, big yeah. title, big name. And if you're lucky, you get a graphic where yeah. I like yours is it's all great. You know, it's all hand-drawn. It's all graphic. But then it has the obviously the name of the book and the title. So yeah, props to the front cover of the yeah, book. Yeah, we got in uh CA for the poster. And the poster is here, here's the postcard. Yeah, you know, which is you know, all these comments were scraped off of social media. And so I just had gathered together 
you know, as they came in, <clears throat> some things that people have written or said or whatever. And um, and so then when we decided to, when Simon and Schuster agreed to redo the book cover, which was, this is the old book cover, <laughs> which okay. was the scary book cover. <laughs> and um, a, a friend told me that uh, this book, so this cover sold, despite itself, you know, <laughs> oh, my book sold the book sold despite the cover. And um, sorry, not enough coffee yet. The um, and so when Simon and Schuster agreed to let me rebrand my branding book, as they said, um, I was excited about that. So we've used the scraped comments and all that to um, to throw on there. Did so you was see yeah, and Martha Rich, uh, who's a great, uh, terrific illustrator in Philadelphia over here in the States, uh, illustrated it. And she did hand draw it. And uh, maybe you've seen that those videos, but the uh, or, uh, stuff we put on social of her drawing it and the initial layout and all that kind of stuff. But did you did you see a, a big difference in in the sales of the book? By Because that's that cover, that original cover is I radically think, different from this one, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, I think there is a big difference in the sales. Uh, it may be due to the book cover, but I think that there's also a um, a renewed or revived or repurposed um, sense uh, for what brand that how important branding is. As much as some people try to lean away from it, and um, and you know, in my head, our market was. I mean, the book was a bit ahead of its time. And the uh, real uh, ability to brand yourself um, or create brand communities really happened after the iPhone, mm. right? And the interconnectivity between when you could c connect with Google and Facebook and Instagram and all these things more or less simultaneously on your iPhone, that's when the real connectivity happened and the real ability to create social communities also happened, which is apparently something I predicted in one form anyway. And so <clears throat> the uh, looking at brands as belief systems just has been a trying to get rid of the clutch works <laughs> of this pancaking of different um, philosophies, if you will, about what a brand is and so forth, and try to scrape all those clean and start over again with a reliance uh, not on advertising because that's a bygone thing right when the uh, that is to say that the the era the madman era that you spoke of earlier when um clients really did work in partnership with the advertising agency to come up with this big idea with which then went over the pipes uh, which originally, of course, was newspaper, then went to radio, and then transitioned to television in the 50s, 60s. Uh, but the ability uh, to send out a message on one station, right? The BBC in England, right? Is that accurate? Uh, yeah, or yeah, three, yeah. ABC, CBS, NBC in the United States. Um, once that dissipated with the advent of cable in the 80s and then social media today, splintered networks um the uh, advertising itself went from being the big idea and clients actually working in partnership with the advertising agencies the advertising agencies having the stakeholder responsibility of helping to 
shape that brand and brand voice and all that. Once that uh, dissipated with all the splintered platforms that are out there today, um, it became just one of many. And so what we try to do now is to figure out what the, the strategic brand narrative is. Well, at the core, how do you, uh, brands, we look at brands as belief, as belief systems, what goes into a belief system, uh, creation story, create icons, sacred words, rituals, um, non-believers and a leader. And once you pack those seven things or unpack those seven things about your brand, you have seven points of differentiation that are uniquely your own. And then you communicate those across social, digital, and traditional media, including advertising, although advertising is a kind of a false start these days. Um, nobody watches it. We flee from it. We were always fleeing from it. <laughs> uh, in the, when I was in advertising, we were trying to stop people from going to the bathroom or to the kitchen, right? And so you had to be break breakthrough and, um, and steer them back to the TV. Well, today... Um, that's not happening at all. So the um, well today so you're, you're trying to you're trying to advertise people while they're while they are in the bathroom. That's the key. Uh, pretty much, <laughs> yeah. And so the um, the interest here is then to spread your messaging across all the different um, social, digital, and traditional channels. Traditional being you know out of home uh, TV advertising, obviously, but out of home. Uh, PR, outdoor, I guess that's the same as outdoor home, but, you know, transit and all that kind of stuff. And so the, um, so that's what we do is, uh, and that's what we want to do. Because if you notice all the powerful, most powerful brands, uh, they're in your face all the time, right? And even though you welcome them in. So if you, I mean, the example I always give is Apple. You know, if you're an Apple person, every day you hear about, uh, the new phone versus the old phone versus, you know, a Galaxy, Samsung phone or whatever, Google or whatever it is. And you hear about the stock price and you hear about um, uh, what Tim Cook is doing today. You hear about uh, ITV. You hear about, you still hear about Johnny Ives and what he's doing, right? <laughs> and, and so, but because the you're getting all this different, all these different inputs, stock price, design, product design, et cetera, et cetera, personality, branding, and all that. Um, you, and you're an Apple person anyway, so you welcome it in. And so you get in all this diverse information every day. Uh, and But because we're members of that community, um, whether it's Apple or Red Bull or Nike or Disney, whoever it is, right? And so um, our challenge, I guess, is to try to make those feeds as interesting as possible. So over here, we follow two metrics. Uh, one of them is that people need to see you in five different places over here in the U.S. anyway, five. Um, it varies by country. Uh, need to see you in five places before they are even aware that you exist. So before they can even say, yeah, I think I've heard of those guys. And so that's very important when you're launching new products or services. It's very important when you're regenning your brand to appeal to a new marketplace, a new demographic or psychographic. And um, it's five in the US, it's 17 in Singapore. So you can imagine. Uh, and then the other metric is uh, it takes a hundred hours to make a friend. And so what this means is that <laughs> that's a lot of tweets. Right. And and if you want to be 
have a shape an experience or shape a relationship, it um, that'll take a hundred hours <laughs> rather than a transaction that will take a hundred hours. And, um, and that's a lot of tweets. That's a lot of, you know, you understand how important things like YouTube and TikTok become then. But the important, most important thing is you can't just, it's not enough just to be on TikTok or uh, Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or um, having influencers, et cetera. You need to be in at least five different places. And yeah. so that gives, that helps brand teams kind of figure out the dimension. So either, what is that? Three, two, three. 2D, 3D, 4D, whatever that is. So, um, so it's going to take some time and it's going to take some a certain amount of content and it's going to take a certain amount of time in order to make things happen. Yeah. So it doesn't happen. Uh, you can't just go viral. It's, even that's not enough. Okay, I like course, really, yeah, if, gonna... if Kanye is telling you, you know, this is what to buy or, or Beyonce or uh, some of the other super influencers, you probably, Elon Musk, then you... Uh, it probably cuts through all of it, but yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe. <clears throat> depends if it depends if you're into those those people. I want to just jump on um, into something that you said at the very beginning. There, you you mentioned that you that the book the book might have been too early, and I agree with that. And you know what? I really wish I'd picked this book up 10, 15 years ago. There's another book yeah. in within brand, and I'm guessing that you've heard of Martin Newmeyer. That he he wrote the book sure. called the Brand Gap, and I feel like that book in my circles and in the, in, in the circles that I see online seems to be making a renaissance because actually some of the theories, the processes, the thoughts and discussions that happen in that book um, are actually more relevant now than maybe when they were released. And mm -hmm. actually I think a lot about the primal code, the primal code and, and what you've written in this book, I think I mentioned earlier, I feel like that is now more relevant than ever. And, and, I, and I'll explain why. In, in in today today's marketplace or in terms of marketers and brand experts you hear a lot about growing a tribe a tribe your community um but i've always found a bit of a disconnect with this because a lot of it is business talk and i and i, and I find a disconnect between something you know the the words the 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 leaders you know the, everything that's within a primal code within brand building I don't find it in these books until I found your book. And actually the words that you use and the primal code is so closely connected with community building and the actual real life attributes, experiences and emotions that you have with building a tribe. So I'd like to kind of go start really here. Where did this come from? Where did you start learning about the these aspects? Yeah. And how did it come about? Yeah, so it came about because I was in advertising and I was faced with a client problem. I've said this at another a lot of other places, but I think that the at that time, which was uh, 2000, the late 1990s, 2000, uh, came up with the idea in 2001, uh, June, July 2001, because I was working on a client problem. And uh, at that time, I mean, people were talking about the Nike tribes, the Apple cult and all that. And but no one knew how to do that for their own brand or company, uh, product or service, um, even though they knew that everyone that's what everyone wanted. Right. And we would always there was always be this meeting where um, you would present a campaign and. 
someone it would be the you know that last meeting before you know the trigger was pulled or the papers were signed the uh, campaign was approved uh with someone who pipe in with uh well google it doesn't advertise and they seem to be doing you know they're taking the world by fire and uh starbucks doesn't advertise so why should we be spending you know 10 20 30 million dollars on on this on this advertising you know why don't we just do what they do <laughs> and so there would be a huge you know not only an elephant root in the room but a huge pause and someone would come up with some something you know um computers tech no one knows what they're doing anyway you know and uh, it's an anomaly and for google and for starbucks you know it's all about the experience or something you know not about coffee and so the um although it was about coffee also obviously but so no one really knew what to do um and i had some time to figure it out and i did and um the client i was working on was lego i was one of a couple global creative directors, but because I had the opportunity of um, being able to go not only to Billund, Denmark, which is where headquarters for Lego is, but also to the headquarters in London and also to uh, Carlsbad, um, Legoland out in California, and all these different places, I probably, in hindsight, really had a better perspective on Lego than Lego, than most of the people inside Lego did. And I just realized, or felt, I should say, didn't realize, I felt in my gut that there was something slightly off. And um, and at the same time, uh, someone from McKinsey, a consultant at McKinsey, was going through the spreadsheets and coming to the same conclusion <laughs> uh, to the point where he told the owners, the family, that they would be, if they kept on with, what, with the way where they were going, they'd be out of business in two years. And so that, you know, sparked some interest from them. And, and I just created this, um, this construct, which, by the way, I feel has been around for thousands of years. And I just happened to come upon it. Um, I, I had a video in the beginning that showed, you know, where some people just show the sky and where some people only see a mass of stars. Some people, you know, pick out the Big Dipper or Orion or whatever it is, right? And so I was just able to co come up with this construct basically while I was working in my garden in Connecticut, which is uh, in the outskirts of New York City. Used to used to train in, commute in every day uh, to Manhattan. And so the um, I just was looking for what are the, con why do we really care about some companies and their products and services like Nike, Apple, Starbucks, Google, et cetera, and Coca-Cola at the time, and not about others. And so I just started thinking about, well, what do they all have? You know, well, they all have a logo, obviously. Um, they didn't all have a website back then, although they might have. Uh, I might be exaggerating there. But the uh, they all had a logo. They all had a story about how they got started, you know, Coke started in a gross, in a, not a grocery store, a, a um, pharmacy down in Georgia. Uh, Google started in a dorm room. Um, Facebook wasn't really around then, but quite, they were still up in Boston uh, at, at Harvard, but the uh, sort of a dating site. Um, but they also had a creation story uh, and so forth. And they all had a creed, just do it, think different, et cetera. 
one of my buddies came up with Craig Tanamoto came up with Think Different, so I knew about the the backstory of that, and the um, so they all had a creation story, they all had a creed, they all had icons. Um, by the way, they also had rituals. You know, the way you open up a, and drink a Coca Cola uh, to ordering at Starbucks is a ritual. You know, at that time, Starbucks had famously flipped the ritual of having coffee in the morning. You know, um, at home and and then doing it at a Starbucks and paying three times as much for it, um, which people thought was insane, but was a deal. And then um, a big deal. And then uh, they all had special words. I scrawned a skinny decaf latte at Starbucks. Yeah, iPhone. Well, iPhone wasn't around yet. Sorry. iMac, <laughs> iPod, this, that, and the other. And um, and then they all had non-believers. Uh, so I grew up in the, what we had we called the burger wars here in the States. The burger wars became the cola wars, became, you know, another kind of war, airline wars and stuff like that, fair wars. And so uh, uh, Pepsi versus Coca-Cola and all these things, Republicans versus Democrats. And there was, so there was seemed to have, have to be the necessi necessitated, having a brand necessitated having something to stand against and bang your head against. Actually, the non-believer part of primal code has become one of the most resonant, which we can go into later, but the, and then the leader, and you just put these seven pieces together and you can, once you're able to tell someone, here's, this is how where this idea came from, how it came about. Here's what we believe in. Uh, here's what it's all about. Here's the uh, how you know it's us. Here's how you use it. Here's the way we're talking about it. Uh, here's what we're not and never want to become, um, which is important, especially in large corporations where you have a multitude of products. You don't want uh, the art in, in the brand architecture. You don't want one brand to be stepping into someone else's space, right? And then here's the team that's leading it. And if you're able to articulate that, um, both in sort of a matchbook cover version of a couple of words, uh, and then in the elevator version, uh, you are able to then uh, command what we call a strategic brand narrative, and um, which makes you totally unique unto yourself. So this gives you the freedom or the ability or the opportunity to not imitate your competitors or what not imitate what someone else has done successfully in another category and follow the herd like lemmings to TikTok, Twitter, YouTube, uh, Super Bowl commercials or NASCAR promotions, et cetera, et cetera. And so, and do something that's unique and entirely your own. And so, yeah, and all of that was laying out there. And so advertising uh, was not the most important thing I realized, and maybe we were doing it wrong, mm. I realized. And I think that's the case. And so all of these um, in branding, as we all know, you ask a hundred people, you know, what is a brand? You can get a hundred different answers, right? And I think that this, and everyone comes up with, you know, something. Uh, what's your, what is it? The power thing. Uh, what is it? Your secret power. <laughs> so, what is your superpower? You know, and all of these other things that they stack up. You know, trying to figure out strategically, you know, what you're all about, giving their own spin to it, and so. It's all a pile of um, 
it's just a pancaking of different things. So we have this, what I call the Kludge Works, um, of how to create a brand. And most of it's wrong. Most of it's very superficial. It's, it's ironic, so, isn't it, that the word brand has an identity crisis? Because it, it 90, really does. Oh, 90, I love that. Yeah, it does. 99% yeah. of people just think it's a logo. And, uh, you know, you, you spend- uh, it's a logo. It's a logo on the website, right? When we talk to people about, oh, they've already done their branding. What did you do? Oh, we just redid our logo on the website. Yeah. Well, yeah. Congratulations here. One thing one about the, the way there. <laughs> one thing about the the primal code that's interesting, and and you said this is probably the most important um, piece of code, which is the pagans. And it's interesting that you talk about the pagans and the non-believers um, over the believers, because many people talk about brand. They talk about the community, the tribe, or you know the the followers, the fans, those type of people, but you focus on the non-believers as the most important. And I, and I really like that. No, 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 no. I need to clarify that. Uh, there is no one thing that's the most important. You need to have all, it's the, the one thing is to have all seven things. And the, so if you have all seven things, you ping both the rational and the emotional parts of our brains that create this holistic sense of totality, if you will, completeness, that, oh, yeah, these guys make sense. And if you make more sense than the people before you or the people after you, you win, right? They prefer you more. And so in preference, create sales. And so in the marketing world, that's the holy grail, right? And so um, what I intended to say, and I probably didn't articulate it right, is that the non-believers has been a very resonant thing because if people are stuck, um, whether they're a, a new a startup who has pivoted so many times they don't they've lost their way, or if you are an older brand who is stuck in their ways, maybe you can figure out where they need to be by saying, "Well, what about this over here? Oh no, we would never do that. Well, what about over here? No, uh, no, we don't like those guys. We don't want to be. <laughs> we not now we don't like them, but we don't want to be like them. Okay, fine. And so, but. Eventually, you back people up into some place where um, you can get a fresh start. And the other thing is that um, if you can identify a group of people who don't want to eat meat, you or don't want sugar, or don't want gas guzzling SUVs, or or something else, you can open up a whole you know virgin territory, a white space. You've just discovered a white space in the marketing arena, and you can start creating products that go after those mar- huge markets that are unattended. Mm. What's the opposite of a pagan? Is it a worshiper? Um, yeah, a believer. believer. Yeah, and by the way, uh, in the book, uh, we use the word pagans, and uh, I was, um cited for being tone deaf or something. <laughs> and so, so from someone in Australia of all places. And um, so, I, so we've switched it to non-believers. But, you know, either way, the um, there are always, in marketing, we always assume that everyone is going to like us because our product is so incredible, right? And the only reason that people, more people aren't using us is because we're not aware of it. And that's uh, sort of a residual notion from push the advertising button. You know, increase the advertising spend that will increase uh, that make help go out to more people, which will increase awareness and more people will come. Well, that 
works up to a certain point. But what we're not recognizing is that for all of the people that go to Starbucks, you know, pe- uh, another large set of people also go to Dunkin' Donuts over here in the States or some other coffee, right? Or they might, you know, in this today's world, they might uh, have, drink Red Bull <laughs> or water or orange juice, mm-hmm. you know? And so the... Um, we tend in marketing, we tend to disregard those people or that fact and spend a lot of time time and wasting putting a lot of wet effort and wasting money and resources going after those people who not who are not a part of the market. And I and with performance marketing, we've kind of steered a bit away from that. But I think the overall um attention um could be more finely directed. Mm. general I, I, I like the idea of 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 you know the deep work that goes into finding your pagans or at least identifying the pagans because it allows because you like you talk about market positioning it allows you to realize who we're not and then that's yeah. the that moment that's the, the process of reduction the process of elimination to get rid of those other areas to then def- you know, define your market find the niche find the you know, your little pocket of where you belong. And uh, you, and again, like, again, we can use the primal code, the tribe, you know. The yeah, tribe. We, so we look for believers and, you know, ask what is the opposite of the non-believers. The opposite, obviously, is the believers. Those people who feel, once they believe, they feel they belong. And they not only buy you, they buy into you. But the, um, so we look at zealots, brand zealots, and we try to find out um, most companies, especially in packaged goods and other areas, they know who their um, advocates are and they know who their repeat purchasers are, right? And this, the heavy buyers, and they have metrics on those people. So we find out, we talk to those people uh, in qualitative and find out what makes us sticky with them because we don't want to lose that, you know, arbitrarily uh, by accident, <laughs> lose what makes us sticky and, and the things that they love about us. And then we've, talk to the potential advocates, potential zealots, and find out what's holding them back. So in the real world, if someone buys us, has bought us seven times, they're probably an advocate, a zealot. If they are have only bought us two or three times, then why haven't they, what's gonna help us, uh, what's, what, what's gonna help them get to seven, right? And become a, a, a heavy zealot. And um, so, uh, we take figure out what those friction points are. And sometimes they might be something we can't do anything about. It might be distribution or it might be the price. Um, we can do things about either of those, but um, it could be something we do, just can't do anything about. And then, um, yeah, we remove those friction points. And immediately, you know, when you do that, because they are the low-hanging fruit anyway, you get a rise in sales usually double digits and um, knock on wood. And um, so that's like the task number one. I like it. Okay, Patrick, in the book, you, you've got a, a, a great quote and I've written it down because I think it's amazing by by someone that's in the book called Peter Matravers from Avida. And the quote is, instead of simply satisfying a consumer need, we want to green the earth and excite the human spirit. Now I can I can really buy into this and I and I love that quote. And I suppose the question from this would be is this is a primal code that I wish every business would adopt. 
Um, how do we get more businesses to connect and deploy a primal code that's more earth friendly? Yeah. Um, well, some people may have to fall by the wayside, unfortunately. It's very uh, difficult for established conventional corporations uh, to move the boat ship of state <laughs> to, I mean, they already have processes in place. They have vendors in place. They have people in place. They have um, supply chains in place to make what they already make. And so to flip that, to create something that's faster, more green, more sustainable, um, cleaner, whatever, is nearly impossible and so what a lot of companies try to do is they buy those companies smaller companies um, and however by bringing them and this differs case by case right but when they once they bring them into their system and their their supply chain and there's they sort of pollute what they bought in many cases and so um as a result of that, the, in the end game, those larger corporations with the, with the supply chains and so forth and the scale will probably start falling away over time because they just won't be able to make the switch. It, it's interesting. I, I had a conversation a few weeks ago and, and it came that it was pretty much the same question. And it was, you know, how can businesses be more sustainable? And mm -hmm. The word that comes up there because of these huge, massive businesses, inertia, you know, the oil tanker, it takes a long, long, long time to move. Yeah, counter, inertia is what I was just describing, yeah. Yeah, the counter argument to that was the speed that people moved within the pandemic to innovate their products, to look at you know, how mm -hmm. they deliver their projects, um, their processes, everything. And if we can do that for a pandemic, then isn't there a case to say that businesses can look at their supply chains they look and look at the way they're circular design and they're thinking the way that they're producing their products and speed things up you know mm -hmm. is it, but it but is the but the, yes and hopefully that would be um the case however i think that you're looking at two different sets of people the first set the people who are trying to be intentionally being uh sustainable green etc cetera, etc cetera, um are entrepreneurs and inside the larger corporations, they're managers. And it's two different mindsets, probably two different, I don't know if it's two different skill sets, it's definitely two different mindsets. And because entrepreneurial, you're, you are much more committed, intentional, um, proactive, possibly, depending on, on, on who you are and where you are, probably more where you are, what the culture is inside of the organization, right? Uh, tends to be more proactive. Where if you're, whereas if you're managing, uh, you are not really paid to be proactive <laughs> and uh, entrepreneurial. You're paid to keep things going. Mm. Uh, and uh, so, so I mean, you have Unilever over there, which is a classic case, I think, of a company that's uh, been a large company set in its ways, if you will and who's been trying to buy up smaller companies and leaning on uh, what oil volet for the last 20 years, 30 years. 
as its uh, nod to to a lot of things. But is, is it the big companies buying out the smaller companies? Is that in the ways to learn and not have gain, you know, have knowledge transfer of these young and small organizations so they can adopt it within their organization? Or they're using these smaller organizations to offset the bad things that they're doing within the larger organization? What's the, the meaning behind buying the smaller, more sustainable? I think it's going to vary case by case, right? But hopefully it's both. You know, hopefully they try to learn something from the smaller organization. But in general, I would say that the, um, I mean, look at the typical deal. The uh, owners, founders get bought out. They stay, you know, two, three, whatever years to help uh, make a transition. And then um, they get the distribution and fall into the systems and the patterns of the larger, basically become usurped by the larger gobbled up by the larger corporation and their ways and means, right? Yeah. And so, I mean, the Hagen dazs that existed in the 90s no longer exists today, for example. Because the Ben and Jerry's. Ben and, ben and Jerry's is yeah. going through the same thing, it sounds like. So mm. so is there any entrepreneurs or businesses out there that, you, that you're aware of or you're working with that are inspiring you, the companies that you think are leading the way? And, and it doesn't have to be from an environmental point of view. I'm just thinking from a creativity yeah. and innovation point so, of view. Yeah. So one of our um, great clients is called Sunrise Banks. They're a local bank in Minneapolis, St. Paul. They were just um, put on the list of brands that matter this week in Fast Company. Uh, the reason that they are a brand that matters is that they have been since the 1970s. Uh, what happened over here in the States is that the government, um, governments, local governments got and banks got together and kind of redlined districts that they did not want to invest in. Usually those, typically those redlined districts were um, so-called minority areas. And so as a result, those areas fell behind uh, the typical um, growth pace of the rest of the community and were disinvested in, um, disenfranchised, et cetera, et cetera. So they didn't have the same growth and which has been substantial over the last you know, 50 years. And so uh, Sunrise Banks has been intentionally actually going into those redlined districts and greenlining them and giving them uh, the funds and the lending and so forth that was necessary for them to keep going. So as David Riley, the CEO, once explained to me, uh, he said, you know, everyone wants the $500 million deal or the $50 million deal, right? No one wants the $50,000 deal, <laughs> but it's the $50,000 deal that keeps the local, you know, YMCA going, you know, which employs 30 people and, um, you know, helps, you know, Uncle Charlie have a job and, uh, and, and you know, maybe your parents or something, right? And so it's those kinds of deals, the micro deals that kind of keep the neighborhood alive and going and um, preventing disaster. And so I would say that that's, so in the financial world, they are also, the other thing is um, payday lending, which I don't know if you have an equivalent over there, but the payday lending is when you don't have enough money to make men's ends meet. And so you go to a person and get some cash, but they, um, but the, the rates, I mean, you could ask for a hundred dollars and have to pay back $200. 
just to make things simple. And so that doesn't work, right? And so they've been uh, helping those things go away um, through FinTech and also um, credit scores. So helping them establish good credit uh, they've been working on. So over the last five to 10 years. And so, um, well, FinTech's shorter. So FinTech's come along, what, in the last five years or so since PayPal. So, um, so they've been doing that. So that's one thing in the financial sector. Mm-hmm. Uh, in another sector, Aurora Solar is um, a SaaS company out in Silicon Valley. They, when we started with working with them, they were they just gotten twenty five million dollars in funding, and what they do is they're two. I mean, it's a standard Silicon Valley success story. Uh, it should be in a book. Uh, two guys at Stanford. They met at a party. They both wanted to do something good. They went to Nairobi and inst- installed uh, solar on a school in Nairobi. And if you can imagine installing solar on a hot uh, Kenyan African under the African sun, um, they said, "Fuck this. There's got to be a wet, better way." So they went back to Stanford and they figured out a better way. So now what you do is you go on a, a Google satellite. You give them your address. They go on Google Satellite. They know exactly where your house is. They know, they can see the roof of your house. They can measure it through you know um, tech, and they can measure not only measure the roof. They can uh, measure the declination of the sun, 365 days a year. They can uh, design you know how the tiles, solar tiles, go on the roof, uh, all in about 20 minutes. And so this is a SaaS system for. Um, builders and installers. So it's no more what they call chuck on a truck, where the guy comes out with a ladder and climbs up to the top of the roof and, you know, <laughs> flings the uh, tape measure across the top of the roof, et cetera, et cetera. So they now have, um, let's see, at the start of 25 million investing when uh, in 2020. So we worked with them two years ago, um, at the start of the pandemic. And on uh, now in January, I think they got another 350, 350 million dollars. So they're on their way to becoming a, a Silicon Valley unicorn. They will work with Elon Musk's and uh, cousins and, and this Elon Solar Company and stuff like that. So, yeah. But so those are two people, two just two that are doing good. And uh, off the top of my head, and. Um, but we also get in the nitty gritty of uh, B2B and um, people who put machines together and, and so forth. So it's, it's really in, interesting about the organizations you met, you mentioned it because well, first things first, they're doing great things for people and, and for the planet. And actually, so that that's one area of the Venn diagram that I think is a core element, especially in today's world. But that they've also got really great products and services, really, mm-hmm. really good that mean something that that matter that actually people need and people want. And I think if you if if you think of a, a Venn diagram, if you if you have a, a great product, if you can do something that the world needs, but then if you add then pr- primal the primal branding or the primal code on top mm-hmm. of that, that's when you can then do incredible things so it's kind of like the pre the pre stage before the primal code is you i suppose you've got to have a great product you know the primal code doesn't work unless you've got a you're offering something that people need and people want would you agree on that um i think that it helps um 
great products or great services succeed <clears throat> faster. And it also helps. I mean, each point of piece, each piece of code is a piece of is a point of differentiation. So other people may have a similar creation story to yours or a similar creed, or but you can't be a cliche. You know, I mean, you can't say, you know, what's the usual roundup of values, you know, <laughs> diversity and uh, uh, empowerment. And, you know, it's the typical list, right? Uh, and this helps get away from that a bit and uh, gets into your own skin. And so it, it's just like when you're being a person, you know, you're a little bit like everyone else, but you're different. You have your own individuality. And by the way, you know, I have to mention that, you know, when we're born, uh, we're anointed with a name, and then we are told that we're a brother, a sister, cousin, grandchild, um, whatever, um, brother, sister, did I say that? And the um, And then we are told where we live, you know, and here's your bed, here's your room, we live in this house on this block, this neighborhood, this city, this country, this planet. And then we go to school and we're told what we're good at and what we're not good at, what we're bad at. And we wrap all these stories around us. And then, and we do the same things with products is um, we wrap stories around them. We tell how they were born. We tell, we're told, you know, how they behave, et cetera, et cetera. And the, um, and that's the same thing we do with products and services. And so when you look at it like that, the, it gives you a different perspective. I think I always asked people, you know, think of your brand as a place, you know, I mean, we have Nike town, obviously, but if, you know, if Apple was a neighborhood, what it would look like, you know, mm. it would be, I think, <laughs> um, very white. Probably everyone has earbuds, earpods in their ears. They're listening to music. It's well lit. Let's put it that way. Uh, maybe a little bit green and uh, park-like setting. Uh, probably looks a lot like the Apple campus. But the um, and the same thing with Nike. You know, everyone would be fit and they'd be in like dressed up in lycra and uh, earbuds in their ears and um, probably listening to the same songs. But They'd be all be fit, et cetera, et cetera. So you can, if you think about your brand that way, um, it gives you a different sensibility sometimes of what we're all about. I like that. I like that. I'm going to do that for for Seed. I'm going to think what if Seed was a town, what it would look like. Yeah. I'd like to think we'd, we'd have a good night out, Patrick, in, in Seed Town. <laughs> we'd have a few beers, hopefully. I, I've got some quick fire questions for you. They're, they're not quick. They often give the longest answers, but I've got a few, but I'm only giving you a couple because I'm, 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 I'm respecting I hate this mind. part. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's see how you get along. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to ask this question because I always ask it and it's kind of like almost part of the show now. So I'm going to, I'm going to just going to go for it. But what's the most important thing that you've learned in the past 12 months? Well, probably what I just described to you. I mean, just that relationship between, um, being anointed, given a name when you're born and to told, you know, who you are and what you're good at and not so good at. Uh, because I think that a lot of our problems as human beings is, um, could be attributed to those stories and unwrapping, divesting ourselves of some of those stories, especially what we're bad at. 
you know? and is that is that kind of focused towards the schooling system um or parenting or parenting you, parenting know? schooling yeah uh, i think so yes and um so i think that uh yeah that's so that's the within the last you know 12 to 18 months that's the one of the key revelations so okay um your best mentor oh that's hard i've had a lot of great mentors but um i would say carl jung probably okay can you have a dead mentor you can have a dead mentor yeah uh, living, I guess the living mentor would be uh, uh, Dean Odegaard, who was my teacher, my English teacher in when I was a junior in high school. Okay. And and your toughest decision? Because he told me that I was a good writer and no one uh, had told me I was good at anything before that. And so the um, that and he also told me, uh, taught me how to play um, um, a C chord. Okay, well, it says on that occasion, it worked, it worked to your advantage being told what you were good at then. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, in my case. It did. Okay. And and your your toughest decision? Oh, it's probably starting my own company. But it's, and it's the, um, it was the best decision. And the, um, and it's the, it's the right decision. And I've been thinking about this a lot lately. And the, you know, well, here in the States, I'm not exact. I think it's somewhat the same in England because we're sort of cousins. <laughs> but the um, the United States is, I'll just go out on the limb and say, it's probably the only country in the world where, you're, where you are encouraged to go out on your own and, and start your own thing. And the, you know, land of riches and um yankee ingenuity and all that kind of stuff tells us to you that you are better off here by going off on your own yet the paradox is is that we're all taught to we're trained to get jobs start careers build a family etc and so there's those two diametrically opposed things right there um but a lot of immigrants um from elon musk to to whoever, Jeff Bezos <clears throat> or Steve Jobs, sons, uh, uh, children of immigrants, um, come <laughs> and it's a land of riches, mm. right? And they take advantage of it. And you see that so many times with, uh, when uh, people come over to the States and you lose that. I mean, I, I don't know how long it takes, a couple of generations maybe before you're, you know, all you want to do is look for a job. But yeah. I think it's the... Um, it's the imperative here to uh no one owes you a job you owe it to yourself to figure out how to do it on your own we we, we don't celebrate entrepreneurship in this country enough we and we don't we will we don't especially don't educate uh you know young people about it and why and how they can do it and guide them it's like i think a lot of people land in running their own business and then they kind of just have to navigate their way through it um, mm -hmm. I think we should we we need new business people. We need new businesses. And um, I don't think we we encourage it enough. Um, Patrick, I'm going to let you choose the last subject for the for the end of this conversation, because we're running out of time. OK, the, these are the three subjects that you can choose from. We've got climate. We've got UK politics. Or we've <sighs> got purpose. You can choose one of those 
one of those subject areas. Okay, climate. Okay, climate. Okay, cool. So we we, we touched on this actually a, a little bit earlier, and and I I I actually believe from conversations that I'm having with people that I believe that the climate change now is more of a psychological problem than an environmental pro- problem, and I'll explain that. And the reason being that we've got the science, we're working on the technology we do know how to navigate out of this but the biggest challenge we've got is behavior and changing the way that people think about their lives about the way that they they behave they travel they eat the way they clothe themselves that's the biggest challenge we have here now Mm -hmm. is there a way that we can use say the primal code to try and create better communities to create better education to help in instigate and motivate positive change. Yeah, I think we made a mistake back in the 60s, you know, back when we created Earth Day. Um, and we were talking about uh, because the narrative there was let's save the animals, you know, someday the ice caps are going to melt and the po- poor polar bears. And hidden behind that was the fact that we were well, we should be saving ourselves. So I think 50 years ago, I think it was 50 years, the first Earth Day, right? Um, if we had flexed that narrative to say we need to save ourselves, um, we'd be in a much different position than we are today, I think, because we are tied, everything is tied to petrochemicals and from making plastics, you know, making iPhones, to um uh to, to automobiles and so forth obviously transportation and so the um i think that that narrative needs to change yeah we helped uh we worked with the un this was several years ago when we they wanted to change the phrasing from uh, global warming to climate change so they were going to Davos, and I didn't work on it personally, and my uh, partner at the time did, um, worked out the argument for making that change, with which I thought at the time was, and I didn't work on it, uh, was a little bit political and a little bit just wordsmithy <laughs> and walking away from the real problem, but the um, trying to soften problem. And yeah, so I would uh, change the narrative. It's all about um, deconstructing the narrative so that you have um, develop a counter narrative that is more impactful. I would 100% agree with that. And, and especially here in the UK, the word climate change for me doesn't work. We live in a country that is often very cold, wet, has very small summers and yeah. whinge about the, the weather. And telling people in the UK that it's going to get a little bit warmer isn't seen as a negative thing. <laughs> it's a positive. Yes. Yeah. I know. I was there in June on a shoot uh, at um, the James Bond studio. What's it called? Yeah. And, Pinewood. And Pinewood. Thank you. And um, Cubby Broccoli was there and everything. So it was a while ago. But the uh, yeah, it rained the entire month of June. When the when the sun would peek out from the clouds, you know, for that fifteen minutes, everyone would crowd out, run out to the lawn to look. 
<laughs> and I think it's it's knowledge poverty. That's what we have in this country. And I'm guessing in the US it's similar. Knowledge poverty. It goes back to education. We're not educating people why this is such it's the biggest challenge of our lifetime. It's the war of our lifetime. And it's it's not taken seriously because it's not delivered. The media don't deliver it seriously. There's no communi- good communications around it. And I, and I feel that we do need to rewrite the narrative. And, and climate change as a global phrase or saying, it may be something that we all understand, that we know what, that, what it is attached to, but actually what it means in terms of our daily lives, uh, in terms of economics, in terms of food, in terms of health, no one really knows or understands it and it because it's not delivered to them in a in a in a clear way so uh, there's a lot of deep work that needs to be done there yeah the language is not simple enough for people to understand i mean uh it's it's relegated to scientific terminology if you will will that is and someone over in britain did a great study about that i thought that about the words and how the words Oh, George Orwell did it, and in, in one of his books, Propaganda, I think, and um, he talks about uh, how we use college-educated, if you will, highfalutin words when no one understands what those words are. So we're t- speaking above um, people's heads, talking over them, and um, not getting, not saying the simple fact, like. Uh, the world is dying or something, you know? And so the, um, so it escapes people. I, I, I had a conversation. And then you have people gluing themselves to, what was it, a Vermeer last week or this week? Mm, to that yeah. one, another one so. today. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, great. Yeah. What is that for? I don't get it. So, um, yeah, anyway. What, so tell me, where were you born? I was born in a, in a, a town, it's not a town, it's, it's, I suppose it's a small city called Blackburn, north of Manchester. Mm-hmm. I lived there till I was four, and then I was actually brought up in the county of Surrey, which is directly below London. And I lived there till I was 20, no, till I was 19, mm-hmm. and then I moved here to Leicester. Mm-hmm. And then where'd you go to college? Here in Leicester. I, I came to uni here and I stayed here. Uh, did you go to a regular college or did you go to an art school or? It was um it was um a co- it was it was a university when I went there, but I don't think it'd been a university that long. It was called it's called De Montfort University. Mm-hmm. And um I studied multimedia design management. Oh, cool. And then um how many kids do you have? Three. Ages? Uh ten months, three and five. Oh, great. And then uh oh good, good. And then um so when did you start Seed? So Seed was started in 2010. It was at the end of so 2010. So is Seed your company? It is my company, yeah. Okay. In 2010? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cool. So it started from uh, three com- uh, businesses that got merged together. One of them was like the zine that we talked about earlier. Yeah. Um, it was like an arts publication. It looked like a zine. Uh, a design company, which was just doing basic graphic design and websites. Mm-hmm. And a media company that was doing video and uh we merged them together and created seed which then became a i suppose at the time you'd call it a multimedia agency but it's kind of changed and developed over 11 years mm-hmm. um we did a, we've worked a lot in education so it has media 
yeah, yeah. true we have to change don't you you have to change a lot um and now actually i i kind of when people say what is seed now i i'd like i'd kind of say we're a communications partner because when you think of design or or a design agency you often think of just marketing in, in those areas but actually the majority of work that we're doing now is it within strategy but at mm-hmm. leadership level but also internal communications actually doing yeah. a lot of the work that you've done um or, or do within within organizations to figure out who are we you know what do we what do we stand for yeah exactly. in an inside out organization exactly yeah and finding that the core truth the deep truth which is the most important work and as a creative and a designer i find the more that i do this work the the more removed i am from the from the creative which obviously i love and it comes it does come it is a part of the process but mm-hmm. the, the the deeper work the most important work is that exploration that discovery in who are we and and who do we who do we want to be become yeah uh, and execution is crucial because execution can screw up any you can have a great strategy and and have it suffer uh from bad execution and vice versa i suppose right the um yes the organizations have to start from the inside out and you have to know you know what you believe in and what you don't believe in in order to move them forward i think so it all kind of starts there i agree yeah yeah so we one thing that we do is we ask people um to write a headline your journalist and uh it's the year 2030 and you're writing a headline about seed or some other client <laughs> or a client and uh what's the headline and then you know two sentences that back up support that headline so those the answer to those um or outcomes of that uh output for that is generally you know something like world peace goes from the world peace or the nobel prize to uh to whatever um tactical thing they're working on that week but <laughs> so it varies but but out of that, you get a sense of if you have all the key stakeholders in the room, you get a sense of where they are going or where they want to go. Yeah, I have a very similar task, which is you have to you're the year is 2035. You're mm-hmm. at your industry awards and the most respected voice in your industry comes on stage and you've won the Lifetime Impact Award. What do mm-hmm. they say? What do they say? The yeah, yeah. Same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I find that's a really good. Task. And the great thing about these type of tasks and these type of exercises is most of these leadership teams, they've never done anything like this before. To them, it may seem a bit fluffy, but when they actually start getting involved in it and they're writing it and they're sharing it, you see their eyes light up. You see the light bulb moments. And yeah. we, we talk about unity. We talk about people coming together and working together. The, those are the moments where I think people do come together when they get creative, when they're storytelling, when they're having fun, maybe when they see different sides to each other and they're not just crunching numbers or you know, hiring and firing people. Those moments are really important. And it's the nuance, it's the magic that happens within those moments, the alchemy that I love the most. And you know, I'm just a facilitator of questions. Most of my strategy work just comes from extracting the words that come out of their mouths, their ideas, the thoughts, 
you know, the fun, the funness of those exercises and then turning it into a, a game plan that they can actually go out and execute. And then eventually, you know, we get to the visual, we get to the art, the creative, which is my kind of, is where I belong. But that art and creative is so much more meaningful. It's so much more impactful when that, that exploratory work is being done in those, in those rooms. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, we find that most, in most organizations, those people have not gotten together in the same room for anything, right? And uh, HR, we, we get HR and finance and the chief operating officer, CEO, CMO, CBO, <laughs> all of them, uh, CTO, all together in the same room. And they're never in the same room together. They used to be together for the holiday party, but they don't have holiday parties anymore, right? Or the company picnic in the summer. But the... Um, so when they're all working together, talking through the, you know, how do we get started? What do we believe in? You know, what don't we believe in? Um, those are big questions. And um, once you get kind of, a, it might not be a consensus, but uh, some articulation of what were they're all about. Um, everyone and who's present in those sessions uh, walks out of the room somehow transformed and but also bonded more importantly bonded together yeah and then some people quit <laughs> yeah 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 you do yeah because yeah. they're not they don't want to be a part of that and so the that's interesting too but yeah and sometimes it needs those those conversations yeah you need sometimes you need those conversations for it for the again i keep mentioning the core truth the truth needs to come out and if you've got you know if you've got people aligned together that are focused in a on the path that they want to take. If someone doesn't want to be part of that path and that path doesn't work for them, then that is a good time to bow out. So uh, I think that's a useful task. Uh, Patrick, yeah, it's not really core truth though. I think it's core belief. Core belief, yeah. Yeah. Well, what's you the know, question that you wanted us to get to that we never got to? Oh, uh, you know what? I'm glad that we dodged UK politics because it would have just ruined my weekend anyway. That like, you, you, you may know that we've got a big problem in this country with uh, yeah. UK politics and... Um, so I want what I wonder, and I, I don't know if you have the answer to this. I, I don't know that there is an answer to this, but you think that if the queen hadn't died, that she would still be in office? Um, what Liz Truss we're talking about? I, I know. I think. Yeah. She, I think. No, I think she would have gone. Oh, uh, okay. I think right. she would have gone. Yeah, I, I think there's a saying in sport: once you've lost the bench, you basically, as a manager, you're over. Basically, she yeah. she she'd lost the bench. You know, she'd lost her. Her, her believers. She didn't have any. I don't know if she had any believers. But it, it's interesting, and I'm, I'm, I'll, I'm carry on recording because I'm, you know, we, this might. Yeah. But we, I, I actually feel in UK politics there is no primal code. You know, if we, if we think, if we go to like the creation story, our creation story in UK politics is hundreds and hundreds of years old. Although important, not relevant mm -hmm. today. There is no creed because we have two political parties that don't believe the same thing. And actually, even within the parties themselves, the parties don't believe it and the people around them don't believe it. The icons are don't associate with anyone or, or don't connect with anyone. The rituals are old and outdated mm -hmm. and, again, are polarised in terms of who you, who you vote for. The sacred words are lies. 
which no one's going <laughs> to believe in. And we've we've uh-huh. had three, we've had three leaders in six weeks. So this this the you know the primal code doesn't work. But if we were to look at U.S. politics, if we were to look say look at Barack Obama, and I don't know your political stance, but from an outsider looking in, he I felt like he he nailed all the pieces of code. Yeah, because it was really the high watermark uh, of the last 20 years anyway, for sure. Yeah, if you look, I I listened, I I read his story, The Promised Land, not that long ago. And you, you can go through the creation story, create icons and everything about him. And he nailed it, you know, either consciously or unconsciously, he nailed it. And um, and I feel like UK politics is is just missing that completely. Yeah, yeah. So maybe that's another conversation for another day. I don't know. That's the article I sent you, wasn't it, about what's going on in, out in the world today? Great article, really great article. And and there's there's a book there. There's a book there, and and just that article. And um, every, you nailed everything. You know, from from food to lifestyle to education. You know, you talk about all the pillars of society and where we are and where we need to be. Um, I think there's 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 another book there. It's amazing. I think it was a really great article. Oh, thanks. Yeah, what's happening today? I I started writing about, or I saw in 2006. I looked at the um, the year 2000 census, U.S. census, and it said in the census that by 2025, um, blacks, Hispanics, and Asians would. Um, be more populous than uh, whites and Caucasians. And I thought to myself, well, that's not going to go over very well. No. Right? The minorities become the majority. And so the so that's been, I mean, I assume everyone else read the census also. I mean, the, the in terms of the government and legislators and so forth. But uh, crazy. Well, I live in Leicester and we've, uh, and um, non-white, um, the, the non-white population have been the majority for um, decades now, uh, and that's yeah. one of the reasons why I love here, live here, because one, it, it's a, a great representation of uh, that a multicultural society can work, mm-hmm. and the fruits that come from multiculturalism, that you know, the, the yeah. I think mixed cultural mixed cultures, and that we share festivals, we share food. Like I think you may, I can't if it was the article or the book you talk about the language, the culture, um, that language is a culture, and it does yeah. bind us together. It's from the article, and I thought yeah. that was a great piece of writing. Yeah, thank you. The um, yeah, if you read, I don't know, are you familiar with Moby Dick? The book? I know the book. I've never read it. Yeah. Well, anyway, if you open up in the, just in the first chapter, the guy goes on a walk. He's walking through Manhattan and he names off all the different uh, people from all over the world. Because in that era, um, I think this is accurate. Uh, the United States had the largest shipping fleet in the world. It was the most active anyway in the world. And uh, England had the largest fleet or army or navy or whatever navy, but the but the um, the Yankees and the Yankee ships, you know, were going to China and Africa and everywhere. And the um, and so you had this hodgepodge, you know, of all these different nationalities in New York City at that in the eighteen what twenties thirties when Herman Melville Melville wrote that. And the um, yeah, it's always been that way. 
if you if you look at the crossroads of the world you if you look at new york bristol here in the uk morocco these were all crossroads because they were shipping ports and they were they would share obviously the markets of spices and trade the trade routes yeah they're the the most beautiful beautiful places in the world the most incredible people um rich and diverse in culture and different and and color and creed you know that i think that's where the beauty is yeah, you have as a culture when you have all of these different inputs, you is so stimulating as opposed to a homogenous um, place without all those stimulate stimulants. Yeah, less stimulating, more less lively, <laughs> mm. literally. And I think that that um, diversity and um, interactivity and connection with other cultures is what makes the world go around, really. Yeah. And that was what the Renaissance was all about, right? You had this monastic uh, middle period called the Dark Ages, and then all of a sudden the inputs uh, started coming back again from uh, China and elsewhere. And and there you go, Renaissance. Well, I'm dreaming for another Renaissance period, Patrick. I'm gonna, I'm gonna hope for that, especially from an environmental point of view. And I, I'm not, I wouldn't classify myself as an eco warrior or a tree hugger, but the more that you learn about the environment, the more that you learn about climate change, you can't help but fall down the rabbit hole and learn about food and, and agriculture and and you know and all the different things that come with with climate change. And I think that well, may be part of, of, of why I was a bit poorly recently. You know, I, I I had pneumonia, but actually it came from being run down. And I think I'm run down because I've got a lot going on up here and, and thinking about a lot of things, like family and work. But I do think about the planet a lot. And um, I'm, I'm really interested in this. I, I'll send you a talk I did in Birmingham recently. Uh, it's a half an hour please. talk. I'll send it yeah. over to you. And it, it talks about the changing of mindset and understanding that there is lots of great positive possibilities here, the changing mindset and changing behavior and all the great things it can do from innovation, from health and well-being, um, all the different areas that mm-hmm. can come from a change in behavior and, and looking after our environment. So there's, there's lots of positive things that can come out of this. But like I said before, the, the, the psychological, the social sciences within climate that's where mm-hmm. the deep work is at the moment. Patrick, for anyone that's listening to this conversation, then where where would where can they find out more about you in your work uh, and get in contact? Uh, we're on Instagram all the time. I, at least it feels like all the time at Primal Branding, and then um, you know LinkedIn obviously is the easiest place. Uh, the book is on Amazon, and um, but we're also, you know, spread across everything. Facebook, not so much Facebook, but YouTube and um, and elsewhere. Uh, the website, primalbranding.co. Amazing. And, and I, I said it at the beginning of the conversation. I, I you know, I think this is an important piece of work and I'm going to be a, an Thank advocate you. for you. And I'm going to champion this book because, do you know what? Thanks, this Johnny. book, I'll be honest with you, the longer it takes me to read a book, the more important it is to me. Because it's one of those books where... Every single page is just packed full of stuff. 
takeaways, you know, things that you can go on. And it's one of those books where you can see, look at the state of it, where I've been dog-earing it, um, that you'll read a page or read a couple of pages, go back a page, have to stop reading it because I need to think about it. I need to reflect on that page and go back to it. So, yeah, the longer it takes me to read a book, the more important it, it, it is to me. And I'll tell you what, this took a long time to read. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know if I should be happy or apologize, but... <laughs> need that. Well, just be happy. Yeah. It's great. No, yeah, I, I guess I'll be that. happy. It's great work. And, I, and again, I, I wish I'd picked it up years ago. Thanks, so, um, yeah, I'll keep, I'll keep shouting about it. But yeah, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, have a great weekend. And, and thanks for putting us together. Appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I could have just spoke to Patrick for hours and hours. The I don't th- I think I had about 40 questions or something to ask and I didn't even get past question 2 or 3. The conversation just naturally progressed and went into lots of different areas and we talked about loads of things. And that's the best type of conversation. I don't like to call it an interview. It is a conversation and it's made me rethink everything about brand and branding and brand building and this deep connection that we have with each other and communities and the things that we love and the things that we care about as most of my conversations now you can see that I connect everything with people and planet because that's really important to me it's something that I'm trying to understand how I can use my skills and my creative skills in brand and brand building and use them to help towards the protection of people and the planet and you'll probably hear that in most of my conversations now that association between creativity and planet and climate. So um, if you do like these conversations that I'm having, if you like my content, please like and share it. Please subscribe to the channel that you're listening to this or watching this. If you think anyone else might find use in these conversations and you think it's important for them to hear it or watch it, please do share it with them. But as always, be useful, be kind. And I'll see you all soon. Bye-bye.